Hello friends and welcome to episode 3 of Swimming Week. On today's show we have Dr. Matt Holdler, an assistant professor of sports media and communications at the University of Rhode Island. Today's discussion is really wide-ranging and we talk about racialized nationalism, gender, the Olympics, and even a little bit of college sports. So before we get to that, as always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at theendofsport.com, where you can contribute to, if you are particularly generous, to our Patreon. But with all that said, please enjoy the third installment of Swimming Week. is an assistant professor of sports media and communications at the University of Rhode Island. As a sports scholar, his wide-ranging research interests include racialized nationalism, gender, the Olympics and international sports structures, mediated representations of sport, internet memes, and of course, swimming. He was also a D1 swimmer at Miami University in Ohio. Matt, we are really excited to have you on the podcast for the second episode of Swimming Week. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I like the show. Friend of the show. And y'all are pretty good too. (laughs) So as we like to ask every guest on the podcast, how are you coping with the pandemic and anti-racist uprisings in Warwick, Rhode Island? Um, Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that y'all do that. Um, I'm doing okay now. Um, This is my first year living in New England and my first year at this university. And so it was tough uh, when we went remote. to be honest, in March, uh, didn't have much of a uh, local um, safety—not safety net, I guess social network. I didn't even have a doctor, like a person, like a, a doctor hadn't gone to one of those yet. Uh, and like you know, all that first initial warnings was make sure that you get in touch with your uh, your doctor to, if you have any problems. Um, Rhode Island got hit really hard, really early. We had a group of um, uh, high school um, students that went to um, uh, Italy. Um, uh, for an early break, um, it was a Catholic school and it had something to do with the Catholic religion or Catholic religious, um, kind of a festival or something. And they came back and Rhode Island's a very small state, but it's, there's a, over a million people in here. So it's very densely populated. And so there was a, apparently a pretty big contamination, um, early on in like early March. So we went pretty quickly into, um, advised lockdown and then more or less like a required lockdown. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> it, it was rough. It was, I mean, I was not in a very good place uh, uh, emotionally, intellectually for a while. Luckily, I mean, Johanna mm-hmm. was nice enough to call me up for like a little Skype happy hour. Um, <laughs> and a few other friends, uh, I'm doing, and now things are getting a little bit better. Um, the same thing with the uprisings. I, because I didn't really have a network here, I didn't really know much about what was going on locally. Felt kind of hopeless. Um, tried to help make sense of it with other folks. Did like kind of that networking, talking about it, trying to support 
um, organizations like giving money. Um, my family lives up in St. Paul, uh, mm. not too far from Minneapolis. I mean, not in Minneapolis, but not too far. So I, um, I heard about what was going on there and um, some of the support that my parents' uh, church was giving to folks, which was really nice to hear and was able to help out some other groups. But yeah, I'm still doing the best I can, I think, like a lot of us. Listen, we have a lot to talk about today. We have so much that we want to get to today as part of our swimming week. Um, we're so grateful to have you here today. So let's kind of get right into it. And I'd like to start off um, by getting a better sense of your sports background. Um, for our listeners, we know you. Um, you're a friend of the show, but our listeners might not be that familiar with you. So can you give us a brief rundown on sort of how you got involved in swimming, um, your career generally, and the extent to which your experiences as a swimmer introduced you or influenced you, sorry, um, to study sport and swimming especially? Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think kind of like, um, just kind of like a lot of us are probably told when we get our master's or um, write your master's thesis or dissertation, some of the first advice we get is, well, if you don't know what to write about, write about what you know. Um, <laughs> so that, that kind of is a feeder throughout. Um, I grew up, I started swimming on a swim team when I was six years old. Um, mm. My neighborhood swim team. I was the youngest of three boys, and I was very energetic. Um, some would say annoying uh, as a child. <laughs> and my mom literally, the story is that my mom literally needed something to tire me out. Uh, and I really wanted to do karate. And that was too expensive. We lived in a neighborhood, um, in a suburban neighborhood that had a neighborhood pool that was safe for my brothers to walk me to. Um, and like, like sidewalks and like well lit. Um, so my parents felt comfortable, my mom and my dad felt comfortable just kind of <laughs> signing off to my older brothers, who were probably eight and ten at the time, uh, <laughs> just walking us across the street to the pool. And then we practiced and I liked it and I was pretty good at it. And I made some friends. I um, did that for two summers. Um, then I swam, this was when I lived in Oklahoma. And then I swam YMCA and I was really good. I mean, I was good for a nine-year-old. Um, I did pretty, pretty well there. So I liked it, you know, like when you're successful at something, you get support from your family and from the community. Uh, you're that young, um, you keep doing it. Uh, I was also very serious, well, serious for that age, baseball and soccer. And then we moved to South Carolina and um, I played all three of those sports, played travel soccer or travel baseball and swam and was successful there. And then we moved to St. Louis and that's when I had to quit one of my sports. It's just swimming is a year-round sport. So you don't really miss a season. Mm -hmm. um, when your family moves so uh, we moved in the middle of soccer season so I couldn't play soccer so basically that's how I dropped soccer out of it um so I did that pretty soccer and baseball pretty seriously um, I was fairly had some success and I liked it uh, I got hurt playing baseball mm -hmm. blew out my shoulder um Ooh. swimming doesn't help your shoulders um <laughs> and then basically um I became a unsuccessful baseball player i was really good at fielding but the knuckleball the knuckle curveball really got me um <laughs> so i had to kind of quit out of the league i was playing at a level that i wanted to play at but um i just wasn't as successful or good enough at that i wasn't having so much fun so yeah. swimming kind of became the default um and pretty much i did that 
throughout high school. Um, although I didn't like practice um, very much. <laughs> uh so um I'm, i was when you all asked or told me that this might be a question or come up i kind of thought about this my junior year it was my junior year i think i basically negotiated with my coach that i would only swim four times a week i would only go to four practice a week at the oh time i was going and joanna probably knows this too have probably a similar idea i think i was supposed to be going to nine practices a week uh like four mornings and then Four, four mornings, four afternoons, and then a Saturday morning, I think is what it was, along those lines. Um, and you basically swim for two and a half hours a day when you're doing those doubles, even more, sometimes even more than that. Uh, and I just hated it, um, going to practice that much, and I wanted to be more active in school. And my dad basically said, you either have to swim X amount of hours or you have to get a job. Um, because I was also going to be part of student council and all that stuff. And so I like basically took the bare minimum of the hours I had to swim, um, joined two clubs at camp on school, and I swam for my junior year, um, went on some recruiting trips. Um, my three schools I went to recruiting trips were Emory, Northern Arizona, and Miami, Ohio. Um, and um, I swam in college uh, throughout my freshman year. They were, we were really good. We got 23rd in the country that year, won our conference, but I was not used to how much hard work it took the division one level. Because <laughs> you didn't like the practice. I did not like the practice. The Allen Iverson of high school swimming. Yeah. I mean, if you take Allen Iverson and like strip away all his talent and charisma, <laughs> that was me um, as a swimmer. Um, and yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, we were swimming three days a week, uh, three, three mornings a week, weightlifting. And then you go to practice five nights a week. And then you have big, long practice on Saturday morning. Um, table, uh, study tables. Um, what else do you have to do? Meetings, all those things that I'm sure Joanna remembers from her time. And some of your other students, that you've, some of the other folks you've talked to that were college athletes. Um, I was not a, thrilled with that amount of being controlled um mm -hmm. i hurt my shoulder pretty bad over training um i like to think i was like a lamborghini that needed to be treated like a lamborghini <laughs> probably i just <laughs> probably i just had bad technique somewhere and i blew up my shoulder i get the same right shoulder um and i basically uh, i couldn't cut food when i went home uh, for spring break my parents had me come over spring break and my mom was happy to see me and so she made me my favorite meal was a steak and I couldn't cut my steak wow. um, my shoulder was so bad and then we were lucky um I, I tried to keep swimming and I was um I'd I'd shattered my hand the summer before my freshman year um working on backstroke finishes I'd sh I'd shattered my hand on uh, the wall uh working on backstroke finishes and so I don't know if I ever really recovered from that either in terms of like balance in my um, strength and everything. Um, but I got lucky. I was able to get up to Atlanta, Georgia, because we were living in Macon, Georgia at the time, and see um, a trainer uh, for the Olympic team. They kind of gave me some rehab. I did it, but I didn't like rehab as much as I didn't like practice. <laughs> I just was not. I was I, in hindsight. I just my I, my dad was probably right. I was just a lazy swimmer. Um, <laughs> that skated by um and then i basically stopped um and i was very disillusioned throughout this whole experience because of just how bad it was um i also i think i told nathan this once that like 
I had to sign away my rights and I wanted to, I wanted to work in sports in my, between my freshman and sophomore year, I worked for the Macon Braves little uh, minor league baseball team. Cause I really thought that's what I wanted to do with my life was being professional sport. And I couldn't do the promotional stuff that my um, uh, internship required because I'd signed my rights away um, to the NCAA. And in hindsight, probably my boss could have taken the risk, um, but it wasn't worth it to them to get, in, to get in trouble. And they also didn't think it was worth it to me to get in the trouble that might have happened uh, to, to have um, appeared in promotional stuff that was requirement of that internship. Um, so like that, all of those things kind of led to my disillusionment. I didn't like swimming at all for a while. And then I did my master's thesis. Am I going too fast? Just make no, no, that's okay. perfect. You're done. I did my master's thesis, um, and uh, I got my U- UC Greensboro. I, get, I uh, was getting my master's in sociology, and I was really interested in globalization and nationalism. And my advisor just said, um, write, write about what you know. And what I knew was sports. And through my contacts uh, from swimming, I was able to interview eight Olympians um, about their national identity in Olympic sport. Um, so I had a good qualitative master's thesis. I had a really good advisor that pushed me towards Iowa. Um, and I still wasn't really, a f- didn't really like swimming, but I liked watching like the great swimmers swim, but I didn't really like the sport. Um, and then when I got back up to Iowa and I was my assistantship, I had to teach, um, a PE skills class because we were still part of a sports studies program for my PhD uh, citizenship and swimming was the one that I could do and reframing and being able to teach swimming and think about swimming as recreational, but also as like a craft mm-hmm. to kind of um, uh, perfects too strong of a word. Cause you're never going to get to a zero time. Um, but like, you know, like you get to enjoy being slightly better or tweaking this mm-hmm. and that. Uh, and that's kind of when I started liking the sport again um, in my, on my own terms. Uh, my dissertation topic was Michael Phelps, ideological celebra- the ide- ideological implication of celebrating Michael Phelps as the greatest limit of all time. I'm not very good at titles. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was my fourth dissertation idea. <laughs> the other one literally got rained out when I was over in Scotland trying to write about um, this amazing thing called the fourth pitch. Look it up if you can um, during the Cultural Olympiad in 2012. Um, and then I had two other ideas. And finally, my advisor said, those, those won't work. What are you interested? What ideas are you interested in rather than what sports are you interested in? And then mm. I was still interested in nationalism. Uh, I was still interested in whiteness um, and race. Uh, gender, obviously, you can't be one of Susan Burrell's students without being interested in gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, well, write about what you know. Um, you know a lot about swimming and, you like, and you've been doing your comps on Olympic sports. Maybe you can do Olympic swimming. And then basically what you know, what you do is you, and, and this is how she taught me to do it too, you write, you use Michael Phelps or whatever as an entry point to then write about what you want to write about and yeah. what, what's yeah. most interesting and what's most important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she did, she did teach me and encourage that. And, um, so yeah, so that, that's where I was. I, um, yeah. And I mean, like looking back, like, so sociological imagination, you know, like agency and structure, like looking back at this, you see how like cultural constraints and structural constraints 
shaped every moment of my participation in the sport, but then also the mm-hmm. way that I think about it. Like, sport of swimming is objective, right? Like, we have this notion that's objective because you get timed, and no matter what the fastest person is, is the person that wins that day. Well, my own personal experiences, my, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was peak training for a regional swim meet in South Carolina. On the way there, I got food poisoning. I was going times that were faster than I ever went in practice, like broken swims. I got food poisoning where I literally couldn't keep anything down for 14 hours straight. Um, and then I couldn't eat anything other than bread for the rest of the five-day five, five day meet. Uh, I still went best times, but like I knew like that, you know, th- those little things that throws a little like um, uh, um, not in that thread of like objectivity, right? Because I, mm-hmm. well, no, I mean, I probably could have gone faster. Um, I did put in the hard work. I did do that stuff. Um, But I didn't because of a stroke of bad luck and the fact that there was bad lighting at that chicken wing place. And I didn't realize that chicken wings (laughs) were not cooked. Because chicken wings are what you should be eating on the way to a regional meat that you've been tapering for. (laughs) Yeah, that's the... I'm going to have to, I would, yeah, you're right. My coach should not have let me do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm teasing. And you know, as I'm listening to this... I'm thinking that if if we had swam together, we might not have been very good friends. And <laughs> and I say that because I was super hardcore. Like I was that annoying person of like, go to every single practice, always be there early, always work your hardest. So I have a feeling I might have judged you really harshly if we had been teammates. So I'm kind of glad that I know you on like the <laughs> other side of our of our swimming careers because yeah. I think I'm a, I'm, I'm a nicer person now than I think I was back then so well yeah I mean I, yes there were those there were those athletes on the team um it was a small team in Macon Georgia um there was a great swimmer she was a few years younger than me but she ended up swimming at George, University of Georgia and was really really good um obviously and um she kind of rightfully kind of like gave me a side eye often. Um, <laughs> nothing like a 17 year old getting a side eye from a 12 year old and knowing you deserve it. Um, <laughs> when I work, I mean, when I went to practice, I did work hard cause I like to race. Um, mm. I feel like it might be, um, but yeah, I'm glad that we know each other now too, rather than then <laughs> for a lot of other reasons. I was an uninteresting 12 year old, 17 year old. So your, your, your research, as we noted in the intro, is like so wide ranging and that it explores um, different moments across the 20th and 21st century where we really see the white patriarchal foundation of swimming in terms of being, uh, in terms of the sport being both racist and sexist. And as you said, this is something that you've been interested in for a while. And so you've talked in your work about how swimming is just one of several sporting racial projects that should be understood within a broader global and arguably white global colonial framework. Now, while we've talked about how this plays out in a number of different contexts, usually the U.S. one, and especially in relation to college football, it'd be super helpful to hear from you about how you understand swimming within this concept of the sporting racial project and how it fits within the white global colonial framework. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and well, like, so when I first started learning about race or learning about swimming and studying swimming, I was pushed to um, think more about race. And to be honest, like during my master's program, I just, hadn't done enough reading, wasn't exposed enough ideas uh, to think 
about um, race in a nuanced way. And still, I think I'm still trying to learn about this. And and right, like and, and the reason to learn about this stuff is to try to change it um, and to um, undo um, our racist structures, our racist society. Uh, and so, for me, like part of the reason why I wasn't able to look at nuances, like swimming, was such a white sport. Um, and the other sports I played, uh, soccer and baseball, even though I was in white neighborhoods um, in white suburbs. Uh, mostly, I should say, um, it was not uncommon for me to have non-white, uh, primarily black teammates and friends that were um, all, that I was playing against uh, in both soccer and baseball. Uh, but it was very uncommon in swimming, like very uncommon. Um, like I still remember the names of some of the um, black swimmers I swim against because there's so few, um, and I don't remember many of the names of the white uh, guys I swim against. Um, and I, I think to think about swimming um, and, and race, you have to think about whiteness. And so like you asked this question about um, the global frameworks, global colonial framework. Um, this is where Ben Carrington's notion that that idea of the concept of the sporting racial project comes in. Because for me, like this, this, this concept, which came out of his book, Race, Sport, and Politics from 2010, I read it right at the right time. Um, thinking about like the complexities, the nuances of this, um, of race, um, how race operates in swimming. I've written a small little blog um, on this idea for U.S. sport history. Uh, but um, essentially what um, Ben Carrington talks about, he, he focuses mostly on black men athletes, I think primarily on black men athletes. Uh, and he looks at how in the turn of the, tw- the, turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, I should say, 1900s, 1930s, um, Black athletes um, were measured, poked, and prod. Scientists were trying to find race in the body, uh, and so what um, they were they were like measuring, like Major Taylor and other athletes to say why are the quote unquote why are these guys so good at sports kind of thing, right? And they're they're determined to find um, these answers in the body, and um. At that exact same time, like scholars like W. Montague Cobb were like pushing back on this and like arguing, well, no, this isn't about black bodies being excellent at sports because they're black. There's other reasons for sporting success rather than race. And like his um, article from 1936, Race and Runners, is really good. And he kind of takes measurements of Jesse Owens, some of his black teammates, and like these measurements contradict some of the findings at the time that we're trying to, that we're saying that. X is really good at sports because, or is really good at running fast because he's black, or Y is really good uh, because he's black, right? And Carrington's broader goal is to think about how we can use sport to theorize or conceptualize meanings of race. And so swimming, for me at least, is a way to conceptualize meanings of whiteness and meanings of white supremacy. Um, and so I took this concept, um, which is also informed by like Joe Fegan and some other scholars, um, and I applied it to swimming. And uh, some of the early scientists and sports scientists were swimmer, swimming coaches and swimming teachers. And so they'd written a bunch of textbooks um, that were very that were that did very well and were successful. 
And so in this part of my um, dissertation that I'm working on trying to turn into a manuscript um, and that I have presented at a conference, uh, but I'm still trying to figure out what else I need to do to turn into a, a manuscript um, size or manuscript to submit for publication. Um, I analyzed four textbooks. I need to go to the archives to get some more. That's probably what I need to do um, once COVID's um, over. I can hopefully do that. But I analyzed four textbooks to look at the language of how the sports scientists in the 19 teens and 20s who taught hundreds and thousands, millions even, arguably, depending on how you measure it, folks how to swim um, around this time through writing about the sport and teaching teachers who taught the sport later. Um, and there is a lot of colonial language used in this, colonizing language used in this, um, where like, um, looking, I looked primarily at freestyle, I looked only at freestyle. And so like freestyle is the quote unquote most efficient sport. It's the fastest stroke. Uh, it is the one that, um, you know, one hand over the other, you're, um, and you kick, uh, flutter kick, uh, behind you, when you see Katie Ledecky beat everybody, that's what she's doing, freestyle. Um, the, the language at this time, though, is very much links modernity to whiteness uh, when they're trying to teach the crawl. And they talk about how the crawl, the, how the white rational actors took the crawl that primitive peoples and animals were doing and rationalize it into the stroke we see now, right? And so in this, these textbooks, the, the introduction to the sport is about how, although this is, a, this is quote, freestyle, this is highly rational um, activity that is due to, in my analysis, um, colonializing language uh, that links uh, modernity and efficiency to whiteness. Um, and colonization as well, and supremacy, white supremacy as well. Um, other scholars have looked at this in a different way than I am, but like um, Gary Osmond and um, uh, Murray Phillips, I mean, you should read everything those guys write, but they wrote, they wrote uh, some, uh, they investigated the, the man who was popularly, at least in swimming circle, not, well, in swimming scholar circles, um, known to have been like the first person to swim what we would probably call the crawl now um, in um, a pool. Uh, his name is Alec Wickman. He's a Solomon Islander. Um, and he was successful in a few meets at around the turn of the 1900s. Um, he was successful in a few meets in Sydney. And the, the famous Australian swimming family of teachers, professors, and racers. Um, and this was back when they used to have races. And sometimes people... And, it wasn't that long before the 1900s when swimming was a very popular sport to gamble on. Um, but uh, the Cavill family saw what he was doing, which was slightly different from like the trudging stroke and other kinds of versions of um, the stroke that was kind of emerging out of um, uh, um, England and Australian swimmings, swimmers. And they basically took it, um, repackaged it as the Australian crawl. Um, uh, and they traveled around the country and around the world, quite literally taking this stroke and then selling it, um, selling their expertise of it um, and making money off of it. And so we've got this language of colonialization and this um, 
actual act of exploitation, this history of exploitation uh, that are kind of co-twin together. That's not, that's not the right word. Co-articulate, maybe, I guess would be a better way of saying it, um, to construct how like white, how swimming, freestyle itself, um, is a white sporting racial project uh, and also fits within that um, global colonial um, framework. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I know it's a little convoluted, um, but I hope that makes sense. It's also like this interesting sort of connection um, of how it kind of then can be mapped onto, and is sometimes mapped onto like this 20th century notion of American, about 20th century being an American um, century, because the Australian crawl, depending on some of the literature out there, kind of merges into the American crawl. Uh, the United States swim team is one of the best dynasties in the world. Um, They've won 33, uh, statistically at least they've won 33, that's not the right way of saying that, 33% of all medals given in swimming have been awarded to American swimmers. So statistically speaking, um, even in Olympics where Americans aren't there, there's always an American on the podium at the Olympics of every event. Um, so America's been very dominant and like this kind of, progress and this narrative of the crawl progressing towards being the American crawl, which we also know is freestyle, um, is kind of where I think this fits in. So, so Kevin Dawson, we talked about this on the first episode of Swimming Week, so it's very similar um, what we're talking about now, and it builds on this discussion that we've already had. And he did a great job um, kind of laying out how the history of African aquatics culture from the 1400s to the 1800s completely debunks many of our racist myths. And, and you're, you've, you've talked about this um, already um, about who can and cannot swim. And I want to urge our listeners to go, if you haven't already, go back and listen to that um, first episode of, of Swimming Week. Now, your work um, and, and what you've, you've started to chat to us um, about um, is how uh, or examines how swimming was constructed as a specifically white sport in a variety of different ways. And you've pointed to these already a couple of times, such as like you mentioned, the sort of whole sports pseudoscience that's going into swimming. Also about textbooks about swimming and that were um, disseminated in the 20s and 40s. I, I'm interested in getting a little bit more um, from your research into this sort of um, framing and construction of sport as a sort of white elite sport. And if you could give us a little bit more um, from what you've found in your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and also read Kevin Dawson's book. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's just, uh, um, yeah, so most, like, as I think I've hopefully talked about, hopefully I've been clear, although I feel yeah. like I'm rambling a little bit, but, like, <laughs> my interest is in the 21st century sport. Like, that's where I'm most interested in. But as we know, um, not, we're not all great, great historians like Johanna, but um, we know that history informs the present, right? At least we know that. At least I know that, um, if nothing else. And so... I got into thinking about the whiteness of swimming. One, I had, an, I had a discussion with um, a faculty member that I really like, and they had this, uh, they had this idea of like, oh, this, your, your dissertation, your work is really uh, just a takeoff of um, Noel, Noel Ignatiev's book, How the Irish Became White, right? Mm -hmm. 
And you're just mm-hmm. basically saying how sewing became white. Yeah. And I think that's maybe, but also like, I think that that erase, like f- what that challenged me to do was to look at the past. Right. And like, I, that's when I found Dawson's Dawson's um, work. It's like, Oh, well, no swimming, <laughs> swimming was not white and yeah. now it's white. And so yeah. like, there's something even more interesting going on in, than the already interesting thing that this mm-hmm. faculty member was, um, was kind of pushing me to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked at like the, the, you know, the pioneers swimming, like, so Anthony Irvin um, was the first black man to win a gold medal in swimming in the United States. And he didn't identify as black. It's been more complicated since then, but when he was 19 years old, he wrote about how he didn't identify as black. His black experience was having um, NBC Sports tell him he was black and USA Swimming tell him he was black. Um, and he's more complicated than that now. I would definitely go read his um, autobiography. It's one of the best sports memoirs I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, w- he came about in 2000 the Sydney, at the Sydney Olympics. And that was also when, you know, Tiger Woods was breaking the, bar- the quote-unquote, breaking the barriers in golf. This incredibly white sport that also has ties to um, privatization like swimming does um, and neighborhoods and redlining and everything. Uh, same thing with the, the Williams sisters. That was the first one they kind of came in and started like really making us think about the whiteness of tennis. Um, although a lot of us were, I mean, a lot of folks were already thinking about that, but they kind of forced it uh, in the public direction too. So Anthony Irvin in his piece talks about how like he felt pressure to be the black star in USA Swimming. And then in 2004, you had Colin Jones and Maritza Correa. Um, and I think Leah Neal was also, and then Leah Neal and Colin Jones were in 2008, um, and then in 2012, and then Simone Manuel, um, obviously in 2016, was the first black American woman to win a gold, individual gold medal um, in swimming. And you'd look around, or I would look around, because um, I'm sure that you, Derek, you weren't poking around the USA Swimming website, but I was. <laughs> um, and every February, they'd have this Pioneers of Swimming um, for mm-hmm. Black History Month. And you could kind of say, all right, it's going to be one of these four folks are going to be on there. And then Anthony Irvin will probably be one of the ones on there. And then they'll probably talk about um, Jeff Cummings and Sabir Mohammed from the 90s. Um, and so you kind of knew the story was basically what it was going to be. Um, and it, was those same, it seemed like it was always those same six athletes that were rotated around. And they were always talking about pioneers. But so, like, I knew that there was, like, that there was non-white swimmers that were doing this, and why were we, quote-unquote, pioneering the black swimmers, and also forgetting that Leah Neal identifies uh, her Chinese ethnicity. She talks about whenever you hear her talk, whenever she's given a microphone, she talks about how she feels like her Chinese ethnicity is erased in the coverage of her as well, and she's just the black swimmer, not the Chinese and black swimmer. Um, and that's kind of how Anthony Irvin talked about his ethnicity too, because he identifies as multiple, as a multiracial person. Um, and so you, I thought about Catherine Fox, Nathan Adrian also um, is, has Asian um, ethnicity. Um, and this incredibly white sport erases these other non-white um, ethnicities. Um, and, you, and then you know about Duke Kano, Kanaoku, the Hawaiian star. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing, well, all right, well, if you go back and look at enough of the, um, what's happening, there are names that even as I, who I'm only a monolingual, and, but the names were, the, were names that were very similar to the Japanese stars, because J- Japan swimming was great in the 30s. Um, mm-hmm. And so I looked up where they were swimming, they were swimming Hawaii, and like there's this whole history of folks 
who were Hawaiian, Japanese, Hawaiian, Filipino, uh, Native Hawaiian um, descent that that swam really well for the U.S. Um, in the 20s, um, 30s, and they would have swam in the 40s, um, in 40 and 44 if there was an Olympics, and, one, and um, a few even made it to the 48 Olympics. Um, and so there's this whole chunk of athletes um, that, were, that were not white and didn't identify as white that were completely erased in this narrative of telling the story of pioneers, which was then also told with uh, Colin Jones, Maritza Correa, Simone Manuel, Leah Neal, which also was implicitly and explicitly a story of American racial progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, for me, like, this story of progress is a big part of um, sports history, but also, like, that's also part of what swimming is, right? Like, we chart how fast you go and how much closer you mm-hmm. get to zero. Um, and how we are progressing to getting 100 meters faster than we've gotten 100 meters last week or whatever it is. Um, and then you map that narrative onto racial progress. But like it gets a lot more complicated when you also say, oh, but there was a lot of non-white swimmers, um, and even swimmers that identified as indigenous, and were, indig- were, were, I mean, were indigenous, I'm sorry, um, in the 1930s and 20s. And then those people are no longer a part of the, t- of the post-war teams, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like. Um, and what does that say about this narrative of progress? What does it say about our constructions of, of race? Like, I mean, it seems like in this country we're very much likely to talk about race in terms of binary. I know I often do it oh, too much in my own work. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this story of... Um, there's this three-year swim club that came about in... Um, Hawaii. And they, um, uh, the coach was Soshi Sakamoto, who couldn't swim, um, but he basically trained these three or four Olympians. Uh, they ignore the woman, Fujiku Kutsutana. She gets kind of ignored from the narrative. Uh, and they basically focus the, the book and, that, was, that has been optioned by um, Ron Howard to be a movie. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, though. Um, but the swim team started in 1930. Eight, I think, and the goal was by 1940 they'd try to make the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And they first started swimming in the irrigation ditches of the plantation that their parents and grandparents were brought over from uh, Japan, the Philippines, um, uh, to work in. And this, these kids started swimming in this ditch, and then through the basically the the story that is told the dominant narrative is that this was meritocracy the model minority myth mm-hmm. uh, these three uh, young men Halo Hiroshi um, Kyo Nakama and Bill Smith um, worked hard followed the rules that the very strict rules that Soshi Sakamoto set up and they became great and between the three of them um, they qualified for the forty or the forty four Olympics Bill Smith was arguably the greatest swimmer, the greatest American swimmer, of the 19, or the greatest freestyler, men's freestyler in the 1940s. Um, and I didn't even know about him. Um, mm-hmm. Never heard of him, but he, there's primary documents all over the place talking about how he's the greatest swimmer. There's a comic book about him um, being this great swimmer. And he held on to the 19, till 48. So he was the best swimmer in the world in 1940. And he held on through World War II, um, was a lifeguard during, for the Navy in World War II. Um, and swam and won two gold medals, I think, in 48 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, Halo Hiroshi swam. Um, they, were both, they were all named to the mythic 40 and the 44 Olympic teams, along with um, Fujiko Kutsutana. She was on the 40 Olympic swim team, the mythical team. 
And these folks are completely kind of erased from the narrative. And this is also fascinating at the same time that people of their descent were also being interned, put into intern camps, internment mm-hmm. camps at the same time. Um, and um, they were in Hawaii, which was, as we know, was one of the places, was, was Pearl Harbor, was in Hawaii, and it was attacked. Um, and these, so this, for me, it's, I, I like pulling at these stories of narrative, Arby's progress, and thinking about what does this tell us about meanings of race? You've done such a good job, like highlighting the, both the prominent place um, that a variety of different ethnicities and race uh, p- people have played in swimming in general, in the history of American swimming. Um, and then you've also highlighted how those narratives have been erased from our memory. And now we um, see swimming as a very much sort of elite white, white sport and it's represented, it, or it's represented as such. I'm curious to get your thoughts, maybe not from your research, but just your thoughts on uh, maybe a, a, a simple two questions. One, how was that history erased? You've done a good job detailing that it was, but I'm curious in, like, to find out how. Was, was this an active, ongoing project? And if it was, why? What, what purpose did that yeah. serve? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I meant to go to the to the office to go check out my to go get my um, uh, Joe Fegan, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my white racial framebook before we talked, but I just couldn't get down there. Um, and he talks about that idea of like collective forgetting. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I think what makes this important for the way that I'm trying to understand um, racism, because like this, because like I'm trying to study systemic racism, trying to understand institutional racism. And quote unquote benign racism, I guess would be how some people talk about it. I don't like yeah. that term, but I know I've heard that before. Um, yeah. Or like this, all this. I mean, swimming is always about. I mean, I, I've swam in swam competitively for four in three different teams, um, mm-hmm. or four different teams, and four different states. So, so I've had like a small slice um, of it. Meritocracy and objectivity is such a huge part of swimming. Like yeah. the clock never lies. Like all these kind of yeah. cliches are a part of it. And so part of what like this collective forgetting. So we, we forget these four these, um, these war years, 1940 and 44, one, because there's no Olympics. And for yeah. the longest time, nobody cared about something outside the Olympics. So that did some of the work of forgetting these folks for us. Also, you would have to maybe explain this incredibly complicated and terrible history of America yeah, of the yeah. corporate coup of Hawaii. <laughs> um, yeah. If you want to kind of get into this, right? Because like the, like the third question I had when I was doing this is, do these guys even consider themselves American, even though this one for the American team? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, like, you know, like some of those athletes that had to um, run for um, the UK, even though they were in New Zealand yeah. um, or the Ethiopian runners who had to run for, it- for Italy. Um, like, so like, like, do they even do that? And like, that is a very sticky, complicated conversation that a lot of folks don't like to have. And part of my understanding of swimming is it's a little C conservative sport, very much about conformity, very much about not rocking the boat to use a really weird water, um, metaphor for swimming. Um, (laughs) 
And so like these things are tricky. People don't, in my experience, people don't like to be asked, why are there no black people at the swim meet? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I go to my baseball practice and I play against other teams, there's black people on those teams. Why Mm -hmm. is that not happening here? Like, those kind of, partially because it's a complicated question, right? That's tied into some of the stuff that Kevin Dawson talks about. Uh, and I'm sure he talked about it in the conversation you all had. Um, but it also gets to systemic, like purposeful rejection of black swimmers in the 40s and the 50s and then the move of swimming to private spaces and neighborhoods, which I benefited from when I was six years old, um, and also backyard pools. And so. <laughs> We forget it because it's much easier to talk about how great it is that Lee and Neil is swimming in the United States swim team than it is to have to tell that eight-year-old. Well, the reason we ignored who Bill Smith and Halo Hirose and Kyo Nakama and Fujiko Katsutana are is because of systemic racism. And in the 1950s, they probably wouldn't have been allowed to swim in some of the pools that we had our meets in mm-hmm. um, because of systemic racism. It's much easier just to be like, well, they didn't, we didn't have the Olympics back then, so they, um, at that time, so we only, we're only really talking about Olympians. Um, would be part of my speculative answer to your question. The International Swimming Hall of Fame, to their credit, though, um, has done some good jobs, has done a good job of recognizing these folks. Um, from what I understand, Fujuka um, Katsutana, who's in the Hawaiian Swimming Hall of Fame, from what I understand, there is a push to get her into the um, International Swimming Hall of Fame. Uh, as well um whether that'll happen anytime soon i don't know um, everything's up there right now as we know did that answer one of your questions at least because you said you had two simple ones and I made yeah I, I i was just i was just curious to to kind of get some i maybe link or, or get your thoughts on how this sort of plays in and, and maybe this is coming to a question i have a little bit later so i don't want to put the cart before the horse um but to to kind of get your thoughts on how this plays into a broader history of, of the commercialization of, of certain Olympic sports and how that actually might play a role in the erasure of yeah, racialized people. Because like we know when the commercialized spaces, the more money gets put in those spaces, they tend to get um, a little bit more homogenous in, in a variety of ways. Yeah. Cause the, yeah, the resource, I can't believe I'm using this pun, but the resource pools in a certain location. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and they're very racialized, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a good way of thinking about it. But then, like, we also will know, like, I would not be surprised um, if there's more research done on this. And as we rightfully want to recognize those great things, I mean, Halo Hirose was, and um, Kiyo Nakama, are uh, not, oh, I'm I have a very Midwestern accent, so I apologize for saying <laughs> that. Um, probably with a very flat accent uh, and wrong. Um, but those guys were legitimately World War, World War II heroes. Like, Halo Hirose hurt himself fighting against fascists in Italy. And um, because they finally allowed um, Americans of Japanese descent, or Hawaiians of Japanese descent, to fight in World War II, and he fought for them. Um, they obviously couldn't go, I mean, obviously, quote-unquote, couldn't go over to the Pacific. Um, theater so they went over to italy um mm-hmm. and fought and like he was part of that that um i think this was the 442nd right i think is what they were mm-hmm. um that like some military historians from when i've read like talk about how like they were instrumental um in some very important um victories uh in uh in european um, theater 
And so like these guys are legitimate war heroes, which we tend to like in this country. Um, or we tend to like to like to say we like um, in this country. So like so this commercialization aspect of the sport, I wouldn't be surprised maybe in five or ten years if we then you we then commodify these guys mm-hmm. um, to kind of um, link because as the sport gets more um, more uh, diverse or more racially um, uh, representative, um, we might start quote unquote unearthing these stories and tell them because then it could be a good kind of way uh, to um, uh, sell the sport, but also commodify them as well. So like, I, I think that's the more, com- that's another complicated aspect of that commercialization aspect is like capitalism is always going to try to find a way to make money. Yeah. So, so I guess one other thing that I want to ask about is, is sort of, I mean, related to commercialization to an extent, but also like, you know, when most people, if they, if they know anything about kind of like racism within swimming is like pool segregation and beach, the yeah. segregation of beach, beaches and things like that. And we touched on that a little bit with Dawson, but you know, his, his work ends a, a bit before that. Um, and so I was wondering like when you teach, or do you talk about this, this period, sort of what do you tell students? What do you tell uh, people about the process of like segregating pools and that sort of thing and the role that it played in sort of create or, or sort of in this white um, swimming myth? Yeah. I mean, so I used to have a unit. Um, so I used, but, um, I'm in a communication and media studies program now. And before my, uh, for my three years as a visiting assistant professor, I was in a kinesiology program, and I taught a class that was critical perspectives on the body, and I had a unit on on systemic racism. And so I decided just, all right, we're going to just do my research for like two weeks straight. Hopefully the students like swimming. If not, <laughs> we'll figure something out. Um, and... I borrow, I have them read one of Jeff Wilty's articles. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend. I, I would not be surprised if Kevin Dawson brought him up. Um, but his book, but Jeff Wilty's book, Contested Waters, is an amazing piece of, that'd be social history, wouldn't it, Joanna? Wouldn't that be social history? Yeah, yeah, social, yeah. social cultural history. Um, of basically of public pools in America. And he kind of like, so when I talk about this with kinesiologists, um, I was also just talking to somebody else about how they taught this. Um, kinesiologists like to look, and I'm stealing from Kyle Coos here when he talks about it, when he taught kinesiology students. Kinesiology students like to look inside the body, like so, like what are the ligaments doing? What is the bone? What are the bones doing? Like why is that causing that problem? Right? Um, and like what we do as cultural studies scholars and historians, we look outside the body, right? And so like what we would do to teach them how this stuff worked. Uh, the first day they had to bring in a Simone Manual article. So I started teaching this in 2016, 2017. Bring in something on Simone Manual, we'll talk about it, like, and then we'll talk about the narratives of Simone Manual, right? Narratives of Simone Manual, at least everything we always found in like New York Times, Newsweek, whatever it was, ESPN, it's about progress, right? And how great it is. She's the first black American woman swimmer to do X, right? Mm-hmm. And look how great America is that we have this space for Simone Manual to do this amazing thing, which is true in one sense right like Simone Manuel's awesome <laughs> and she swam great and it's fun to watch her swim great and, and like that smile after she won is one of the best things at the Olympics 2016 because she didn't expect to win um but then we unpack it right and we talk about so we've got scientific racism um that makes this an anomaly right so like this progress that quote-unquote she overcame 
one of the things is scientific racism. So you look at how, and we, we go through these studies, the Montague Cobb study about um, race and runners, where he basically debunks all of the science at the time that says why black people are better runners. And he basically debunks it um, through his own, like basically doing their work for them um, and debunking it. Uh, we talk about the, a nickel a study from the 60s that I kind of already cited a little bit about um, skinny, I mean, a, heavy bones and um, small lung capacity. Uh, and then we talk about Jeff Wiltsey's book, The Structural Side of Racism, right? So we had scientific racism and structural racism, where when these public pools started, um, the pools were gender segregated and class segregated. Um, and then around the 1910s and 20s, they begin to be desegregated by gender. And at that same time, you've got these technological advancements where swimmers are able to wear less clothing. While in the 1920s and 30s, you've got this huge boom of public spaces, public pools because of um, the uh, FDR, the New Deal. And people are starting to not want, and like this was the argument that Welty made, is people are starting to not want black or white women around black men, especially in um, the state of undress that you can be when you're swimming. And so that's when they really began, the 1920s and 1930s, they really began to have um, racial, uh, racial segregation, and then they would violently uphold it. Um, violently uh and if you've ever been into a <laughs> swim fight with your older brother you know how scary it could be to almost drown <laughs> uh let alone like when these things are really happening with weapons um and um organized violence and then also trying to drown people if people are brave enough or black people which they were brave enough to try to swim out to try to get uh, protest these public spaces um, and they would be literally beaten out of it across towns and sometimes across cities, um, getting chased by white mobs if they tried to swim in these pools. Uh, and then through court systems, um, through court rulings, uh, and Wilty talks about this <laughs> much better than I am, but court rulings, they basically were forced to desegregate racially of these pools in the 1950s. Um, and what happened was, kind of like what we've seen in other spaces, um, white governments, because black people still couldn't vote, because uh, this is before the Voting Rights Act, white um, local municipal governments started defunding these public pools. And so these incredibly popular spaces that were having hundreds of thousands of people visit them, almost the very next year, tens of thousands of people only were coming to them. Uh, and huge numbers of black people were coming to these, these city pools, and huge numbers of white people were leaving. And there, there's this white flight that's also going on at the same time, and neighborhoods are building their pools. And in these neighborhoods, you can only be a member of these pools if you live in those neighborhoods, and neighborhoods are not lending to black families or Jewish families, but mostly black families, what Wilty talks about. Um, and so you continuously defund the pools and let them just kind of just get in a terrible shape. Um, so that's the only place where black people could have swam if they wanted to, and they literally aren't going to be able to swim because it's not safe or there's no water in the pools anymore, there's no lifeguards or whatever, while at the same time you've got white families that are basically trading their own public school pools through sharing of resources in these community neighborhood pools. Similar to like what folks are worried about is going to happen during COVID with the teaching pods 
um, happening. Mm. Uh, <laughs> same thing. And so like that, um, and so we, te- we, te- we tease through all that. And then we also deal with the CDC studies from the early 2000s, about 10 years ago, about how a black child is 3.5 times more likely to drown um, than a white child. And a, a Latino child is 1.5 times more likely to drown than a, than a white child. And because those stats were always brought up when we talked about Simone Manuel. So we talked about that, like the structural racism, scientific racism. We also talked about there's a group of scholars at University of Memphis. I don't think they've done a study in a while that were commissioned by USA Swimming to look at, quote unquote, cultural reasons why black people don't swim. Um, and one of the things they found was like parents. I think Kevin Dawson probably talked about this, but like generations of parents from either violent um, segregate, segregation, um, like vi- uh, violent segregation or uh, what some scholars are called like de facto segregation with there not being any opportunities to swim. The parents weren't able to swim and everybody knows that it's dangerous to swim if you don't know how. So a protective move is to not let your child swim um, because you don't want them to drown and you also can't swim. So you're worried that you won't be able to save them if they're swimming was one of the things that these group of Memphis um, scholars or these scholars found. So like this generation, a legacy of not wanting your kids to swim because you, you didn't swim or you couldn't swim or you were worried for their safety um, for a variety of reasons. Um, they also kind of talked about this idea and this is, this is, this, this finding has been pushed back on by folks, but they did say like, um, um, some other people that reported that it was because, uh, hair they did, um, uh, because of the chemicals and chlorine would do damage to hair, especially, um, for young women uh, and girl and black girls, um, was one of the reasons why, um, and uh, proximity to pools was another reason why black people weren't swimming. So like they kind of touched on this quote unquote cultural reasons for lack of a better term, as was they kind of used, knowing that it wasn't the best terminology. Um, and so we talk about all of those things um, through, then we individualize Simone Manuel and say that she overcame all these barriers, um, become the best, the first floor over. So that's how I teach it. You know, you're laying out this history, and if you think about it, the the um the the how do I say the chronology of when the Hawaiian and Japanese American swimmers were swimming and and were doing well and were successful, that does overlap with the history of segregation, yeah. right? So so if we're talking about narratives and like what why aren't why are histories included why are not. I mean, um, you know, that obviously doesn't jive very well if you're talking about, well, like, well, there's this desegregation, but yet people are still able to swim. So what's the point of segregation? You know, like, um, so I, I think that's that's really I think that's just something interesting to kind of point out to kind of connect some yeah. of the last two answers. There's like a po- possible answer. It's obviously much more complicated than that. But I, I just well, thought that was interesting. No, I think you're right. And what like that also I mean, and also what you're kind of reminding me and bringing up is the comp like. This also complicates the really idea of, you know, like Jim Crow, it was colored and white, right? Was like the terminology they used on all of like the spaces um, for like, can you use these public facilities based on this, this binary racialization, right? Um, and Duke Kanamoku, um, and then like, and this, this three-year swim club, because they would come swim in the mainland. They come swim meets in the mainland. Sometimes they'd swim on the West Coast, but they'd also come and swim in Missouri. There's this, they come and swim this, there's a, there used to be this beautiful pool of Clayton, Missouri, um, that would have these big meets and they would swim in there. And they talk about how 
in California, Duke could, because Duke was always, because Duke was the most famous swimmer from Hawaii and everybody loved him because um, he's like a celebrity. Um, and he would go with him sometimes as like a, as like an ambassador. And he, he could go into the front door in hotels in Hawaii and Washington, but not necessarily Oregon. You might have to go in the back door in Oregon. And then they'd get into the Midwest and they would have to move to the back car of the train, all of them would be. Because as you got to different parts of the country, they would no longer be, they didn't use this language and, I, and I'm not, forgive me if this is not the best theoretical term, but like white adjacent enough. Um, they were white adjacent enough in Hawaii to be able to use some of the public spaces that was, I mean, parts of the country that were, that were codified as white but in other parts of the country, they were not white adjacent enough, and they had to use the public spaces that were codified as colored. Yeah. And so the other story, like kind of like what you're bringing up, it even co- like it speaks to like the very real contradictions and the just the lack of logic of racism, except mm-hmm. for the fact that racism benefits white people. Like that's the underlying right. logic, I guess. So I'd I'd like to switch a little bit, um, switch gears a little bit to the contemporary, to the to Michael Phelps stuff. Um, because uh, you mentioned that you've, you wrote your dissertation on Michael Phelps and you, you've written a, a number of articles on the sort of um, history or the representation of Michael Phelps. So I'd like to chat a little bit about that. And in spe- specifically, I'd like to talk, ask you about your piece in Sport History Review, um, where you compare how international um, swimming changed its tune regarding eligibility, something that we are very keen on uh in this show um from sort of the mike smith i've heard i've heard (laughs) (laughs) so so like you you trace out this historical shift from um in terms of eligibility from mark spitz um who famously won seven gold medals at the at 1972 olympic games to the michael phelps that were probably most of if not all of our listeners are familiar with in the 2000s and the 2000s uh, 2010s, um, you state that the idea of eligibility became liberalized in a way that, and I'm quoting you here now because it was it, it was very well put, provided space for a singular athlete like Michael Phelps to partic- participate within this process for his own individual economic and social benefit in a way that not only does or not only does not fundamentally change the capitalist structures of international sport, but actually sustains it. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about what you mean by this, and perhaps just to like put it in a, a broad context for, for something that maybe our listeners um, would be more attuned with, listen, knowing that we kind of are so onto this idea of eligibility, and in particular, this dichotomy between sort of amateur and professional can you walk us through the impact that michael phelps had on eligibility rules of usa swimming where he sort of fits in this long history of eligibility in relation to this binary of amateurism and professionalism yeah i can i can do my best um it's weird having somebody read back a sentence to you uh, that you wrote (laughs) i That, that whoever wrote that was a very confident grad student. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, 
I mean, and this is, to be honest, I gave Susan a hard time earlier, but this is like one of the places where I was very glad she encouraged me to focus on Phelps because it's, it's so fascinating, like how interconnected all of these structures are, right? And how you can't pull at one of these strings without like everything toppling together or everything mm-hmm. getting tighter together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, I mean, I, I think it'd be fair to say that at least um, in the late 20th century, 21st century, if you know anything about American swimming, especially men, like if you know anything about men's American swimming, at least, you know the names Mark Spitz and you know Michael Phelps. And so like it was a very um, sort of important to kind of um, tra- trace the differences between those. And that's kind of how this started. Grant Farad wrote an interesting article that I'm still trying to make sense of because um, it's very theoretical, um, uh, where he kind of thinks about the uncanniness of time, of Olympic time. He wrote it, Dave Andrews and um, uh, I think Mike Silk's sport and neoliberalism book. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of got me thinking about this. And, and for me, it was just trying to lay out like, all right, so what's the difference between in 1972, Mark Spitz had to basically quit swimming uh, because he tried to, he capitalized on his seven gold medals in seven events um, by where, by the, in that famous picture of him wearing the red, white, and blue Speedo with the seven gold medals around him um, with the red background. The argument was that he made a million dollars and then he was immediately ineligible. Uh, and then I found out also, like, during the Olympics, he, um, uh, like, I think after his fourth or fifth gold medal, he waved a pair of shoes at a crowd. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was just waving to a friend and didn't realize he was holding his shoes. Some people said that they thought he was trying to, um, and this is back when, a- this is Avery Brunge's last Olympics, who was a huge amateurism hawk. Um, yeah. And they basically they pulled this this the biggest star uh, on the American team at least into um, a, an emergency hearing, and they were going to get him kicked off, kicked out of the Olympics because they thought that he was um, promoting that shoe. Luckily for him, um, he won his appeal, um, and he was able to play or able to keep swimming, and so he won the next two or three gold medals and got to a seven out of seven. And so, like, and he did it when he was twenty three, and then in two thousand four. When Michael Phelps had his first Olympics, his first shot at trying to win a gold medals, that was a million dollar, um, uh, a million dollar uh, attempt from Speedo. So a million dollars to a million dollars also echoes this as well. Um, Mark Fitz, or Michael Phelps is also twenty three, and so like this fact, this twenty three year old had to quit, and then and Phelps has really just taken off with his career at twenty three as a professional swimmer. Um, I ha- I wanted to trace through what is it about American sport from 1972 to 2004 that makes these two amazing swimmers uh, who are both apparently worth a million dollars to somebody, uh, what makes one of them allow that to be the beginning of his career and the other one that's automatically the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And basically what comes out of it is like I literally just went through. So USA Swimming came about in 19... 19- uh, 79 uh, out of the Ted Stevens Amateur Act, uh, and is basically the first rule book that I studied was 1981. I think it was the first time it was codified or that I could find. And I just literally traced out what does it mean to be li- to be eligible mm-hmm. <laughs> to swim for USA Swimming. And this is where it gets really complicated too, because USA Swimming is the national organization, the national organization that governing body of swimming in the United States and they're linked to FINA, which is the international swimming body. Uh, and they, and FINA governs swimming at the Olympics and they're tied to the Olympics, the, the IOC. 
And so if you run afoul of one of them, there's a good chance that you're going to run afoul of all of them. So they're interconnected. Um, and you quickly see that one of the ways that the IOC maintains, at least this is what I found, one of the ways that IOC maintains um, their eligibility is through relationships, and then other people have to enforce these rules for them or choose not to. Um, and so in the 1970s, the Olympics were in a hard position. Um, the 76 Olympics, you got the 72 Olympics where um, there's terrorist acts. The 76 Olympics, which it took Montreal till 2010 to pay off, I think. Um, the 1980 Olympics and the boycotts. Uh, the eight, I think the United States was the only country to bid for the 84 games, if I remember correctly. Um, and so like, there was like this time period where people are really worried about the future of the Olympics, kind of like right now, um, yeah. for other reasons. And one of the ways that they wanted to solve this was let's open up the Olympics. Let's liberalize the Olympics. Let's let non-professionals in because that'll bring in a crowd. Um, yeah. That'll bring in fans. Uh, and they pointed towards Ted Turner had those Goodwill games that had apparently good, good um, television ratings in the late 80s. Uh, and they said, like, this shows us that this is there. And so you had tennis was the first one. So Steffi Graf in 1988 had her Golden Slam. Uh, where mm -hmm. she wins all four, and then she also wins a gold medal. And, and then 92 was the, the dream team. And so from the 1981, for the USA dream team and the NBA players, and so from 81 to 92, you see like this subtle changes. So like if you wanted to swim in 1981, you couldn't make money as a coach, um, mm -hmm. but you could get some small like broken time payments um, for missing your job, and you could get some reimbursement um, for travel, which was a big news back then, big, big deal uh, for amateurism. Um, even at that time frame, it was so strict. Uh, but you slowly see eligibility um, and those kinds of rules break down over a 10 or 12 year period. Um, and then you also see USA, USA Swimming start to give money to swimmers if they, if they, if they reach certain goals that they become on the, on the national team or they win medals or whatever. So through just how the term eligibility gets codified, you can see how um, the money is seeps into this, this sport that nobody watches except for during the Olympics. Yeah. Um, and then you also see how the shift, it gets shifted over to being about the way you maintain eligibility is by following and having a, a code of conduct and not being a doper. Mm -hmm. So it encourages you to make as much money as you possibly can, which if the only way you can make money is to be a brand, yeah. folks that have been around for a while are going to benefit from that. And the newer, mm -hmm. the newer faces aren't going to benefit. It's going to be hard for them to break in. So it encourages these longer careers and it makes it harder for some of these uh, marginal I call them marginal. They're still world-class swimmers. These yeah. marginal swimmers to, um, to break, away, break in because they're not going to be able to maintain this because um, there's only room for a few athletes to make a bunch of money um, because there's not a whole, there's not a big pot of money in there. In there. Um, and so like Phelps gets to stay on as this professional. Ryan Lockie breaks in, um, kind of markets himself as the different kind of uh, elite swimmer, right? Like Phelps is the, is the all-American machine who's going who's gonna to crush his opponents but also have a goofy grin. Um, yeah. And Ryan Lochte is the, um, the free-spirited um, hunk, right? And, like, yeah. so they kind of, and then they basically 
take up a lot of the space uh, and you don't, and some of these other guys don't ever kind of break in. Um, and so like from 72 to 2004, this liberalization of the rules that allows for these kinds of professionalization um, happens through the codification of eligibility to the point where by I think 95 or no, I'm sorry, 98, there is no section of eligibility. It's now a section called code of conduct. Yeah. And you've got to follow these certain rules and then also call this hotline. Um, if you have questions about doping, we're going to make you are in charge of doping um, and making sure that you follow the rules um, on your own body. So what I'm hearing is, is that Phelps um, and in some ways Mark Spitz, but like they were part and parcel of this shift um, that we can probably all see um, over the past like 30 years in the Olympic Games to something that was probably considered very amateur in terms of like the actual athletes to this pseudo professional commercialized space, this mega ritual, this massive massive event and on top of that you have like people like phelps and lochte and you start to see like there's a celebrity aspect um going in all of that how important do you think phelps was to that movement and i'm thinking like now you can think of a variety of different olympic athletes like lindsey vaughn has this sort of same aura right like this this uh bigger than than life um this sort of celebrity how important do you think phelps was to that and the loosening of this amateur professional dichotomy yeah i think that's a really good question because i was thinking about that during when i was i remember thinking about this when i was writing this and because i think he's more of a luck of the timing Mm. um but but I don't want to do too much. I mean, because he was. I mean, he was an amazing swimmer. Um, yeah, and that helps, obviously. Uh, but like a '94 Anita Nall, um, Joanna. Do you remember that name at all? Or... No, I don't. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I keep on picking on you by asking about these things. <laughs> you keep telling me you didn't know. Uh, sorry. Um, she was a great swimmer that swam. She was. She swam the Olympics in '92, I think, and as like a 14 year old, was really good. And she for she forgot no forwent <laughs> she forwent her or gave up her NCAA eligibility to try to go pro. Tom Dolan swam in '96 and 2000, so at University of Michigan, he signed a deal with Nike in 1996, um, gave up his last year of eligibility at University of Michigan, uh, and and so so the, so there was folks that were doing this stuff, and those guys you could argue if you wanted to go this route that those guys kind of laid the groundwork to then allow, and before that, Tom Jager and Matt Biondi had these, and Mark Spitz was even a part of this, even as a 40-year-old, um, mm-hmm. had these duels on ABC Worldwide of Sports mm-hmm. um, where they would, like, sw- sw- the winner would get $20,000 and the loser would get $10,000, and they'd race 50 yards or whatever it was. Um, so, like, you had these sort of models, but once again, it's these very few people that are taking up all the space that's available, to all the money that's available and all those resources. Um, outside of just the basics that the USA Swing was given. And so Phelps kind of had this guideline, and Phelps was a singular talent, right? He could swim everything. Um, his worst stroke was, was breaststroke, and he was a national champion. Um, mm-hmm. So he could swim multiple events, and in a sport like swimming, you have to be able to swim multiple events in order to maintain, I mean, I would argue, in order to maintain the United States's 
audience's interest, right? Mm -hmm. Because the Olympics is an eight day meet or nine day meet. Um, And if you're not, if you're only swimming three days, it's pretty easy for them to ignore you, right? Like you have to be a multi-event star to be on TV every night. So then that's must see TV kind of thing. Um, Because they're like, oh, you're going to go, you're going to go home. You're going to go to the bar and watch Phelps swim tonight, right? Like that was a thing that was happening in 2008 Olympics. People did um, make it, make it a night to go watch him swim because of how great he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so this versatility and his coach, Bob Bowman's arguably saw that in the, tr- when he was, when he was 12 years old and started training him towards that, um, for historic reasons, uh, because he was so talented, but also because they wanted to push to see how fast he could go. But I would, I would argue eventually part of it became about, um, his branding and about his celebrity. Um, Because one of the ways he was sold in the 2004 and 2008 Olympics before that was how versatile he was, Um, which is an amazing thing to be celebrating just as like the the deindustrialization is like getting finalized to celebrate this American guy for being such a versatile athlete. Yeah. Um, So I think, yes, part of it is that it is about Phelps. But no, if if it would have been the other way around, I think Mark Spitz would have been just as successful. Yeah. Or so, if we care about women's sports, maybe um, Elizabeth Beisel or, or not Elizabeth Beisel, but some of the other athletes um, yeah. from that time period who stayed on. So one of the reasons why I asked that question and, and not to put you on the spot, but like, again, you haven't noticed we talk a lot about college sport um, mm-hmm. and and this like whole liberalization of this like binary this like traditionally understood binary between amateur and professional and seeing the evolution of the olympics as a commercialized event um and seeing how it's become this massively um commercial capitalist event that like sells a bunch of crap like sells everything so seeing this like this historical shift over the past however many years um, in the Olympics and then seeing things like the dream team and seeing the allowance of actual professional athletes who are making millions of millions of dollars like Phelps um, and like basketball players coming into something that's typically um, this amateur space and seeing how that's kind of like allowed and it actually benefits the Olympic Games. And then to juxtapose that with contemporary college sport, it's... Mm-hmm it's hard not to be like, this is the sort of touchstone. And I'm not the first to say this. Many people have said like, why don't college sports adopt more of an Olympic model of amateurism? Um, So I kind of want to just open that up to you and, and ask your thoughts on the matter. Like, does that form of amateurism make sense in college sport? Um, Well, I mean, I think it could, um, like this kind of reminds me like Katie Ledecky, um, mm-hmm. who's a very versatile, uh, she's, she's probably the, well, her Katie Ledecky is an amazing, is the best distance freestyle we've distance freestyle America's ever had. Um, and she can swim a, a wide variety. And some people have argued that one of the reasons why she's dipped into some of the hundred, the hundred meter swim instead of just staying at the 200 to the, to the 800 of the Olympics is to add some of that versatility to make, to make it easier to brand herself. I don't know if I buy that argument, but she made Mm $250,000 for her gold medals at the 2016 Olympics. And she was able to maintain her eligibility at Stanford. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so where, like, it, within that same four-year period, Terrell Pryor, football player at Ohio State, and other ones were getting suspended for selling um, their goods or trading, yeah. like, their rings for tattoos. Um, so, like, we've yeah. already seen <laughs> that yeah. the um, Olympic, am- quote-unquote, amateur model does work for some athletes, um, disproportionately white sports like Kyle Snyder and wrestling as well. Um, and so, so from the evidence, I would say that you're spot on that we could try an Olympic style, um, approach towards athletes rights, uh, athletes, economic rights. Um, I don't even know if I'd want to even say like Olympic style amateurism. Um, I would just say Olympic style, um, rights because, um, we already see that they're they're, the like Katie Ledecky, Joe Schooling, those guys are already benefiting from it anyways. We might as well open it up for the other folks. Yeah, um, it's a stupid term anyways, the idea of amateurism anyways. Yeah, well, and that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, I mean, if you go back and look at some of those early pictures up from the 1920s Olympics, yeah. those were highly commercialized for their time. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Got Lip, Lipton tea, tea signs and <laughs> all over the stadium. So... Um, but yeah, I, I think I think you're on to something there, Derek. I, I'm not I am not <laughs> nearly the first person to suggest this. And I think like Taylor Branch did a like a good but however brief um kind of outline of the like the fact that you're you are right. Like early Olympics, these people were like very much celebrity and did have riches. And to think that that idea has fizzled its way down into like the american psyche is is like an odd and like very ritualistic ode to like a a a never-ending love for capitalism even when it hurts us every day well and i mean phelps like part of what makes phelps interesting is that phelps very much took advantage of this and didn't seem to ever quite i mean what's interesting now is that he seems to be starting to question this and seeing inequalities um because at the same time that he's worth over $100 million, you got Lolo Jones. Who Lolo Jones was her own kind of celebrity. Like, if, you, if anybody watched that yeah, documentary, yeah. The Weight of Gold, she talks about how she was um, near the end of her career when she was still Lolo Jones. We still knew who she was. Um, she was having to work at a gym to be yeah. able to um, make ends meet. Um, yeah. While Michael Phelps is worth $100 million, or is making $100 million through selling a likeness, um, yeah. his own likeness and things. So, yeah. I mean, and he very much, and he decided that he actively gave up his eligibility in NCAA because he thought he'd be a better swimmer if he didn't do that, and also he'd be able to capitalize earlier on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it depends on what we want sport. I mean, I guess it gets down to it. what do we want NCAA sport for? What is the goal of NCAA sport? Yeah. yeah. Well, and sort of one thing I want to pick up on is, you know, you've, you've tweeted a fair bit about um, how Michael Phelps sort of fits within this white racialization of swimming that you've talked about in like an earlier historical context. And then, you know, it's also, I guess, as a side note, interesting that because he's spoken out about mental health issues, which is like kudos, like Barbara to you that he, you know, his like his celebrity has kind of increased even more. Um, and, you know, he is one of the biggest names in swimming, like ever, probably worldwide. And so we're, I'd really like to sort of hear um, what, about your work in progress on the issue, especially in the light of like what people may seem to think to be like Black American Olympic swimmers um, and how they've been doing over the last several decades. Yeah. Um, 
I, yeah, so like um, the last two things I've worked, I, I stepped away from swimming after, after, I'm sure, I don't know if you all felt this way, but after I was doing my, my dissertation and I got a few things out of it, I was like, I don't really want to write about this stuff anymore for a little bit. I want to take some time off. Uh, and so I still talked about whiteness and some of the other stuff I've written, but I'm returning back to um, some of the work that I've done in the past. Um, and this weight of gold documentary is part of it. And mm-hmm. I'm really, to me, uh, the other thing is this new swimming league, this new pro swimming league that's, that got off the ground last year and we'll see what happens this year with COVID. Um, but I'm fascinated by like, you never, you hear every time you read, at least in 2016 and even now, almost every time you read anything about Simone Manuel, it, it invariably says the black swimmer Simone Manuel, right? Mm-hmm. And Simone Manuel even talks about how she was always known as the black swimmer growing up. And like, she does this, I mean, she talks with some really interesting sort of nuances of what that meant to her um, historically, but also emotionally and physically, and like where she knew it and all these things. Um, I would urge folks to go listen, follow her on Twitter. She's really good about talking about this stuff too and outspoken. Um, but like, the, you know, part of the thing that we know about whiteness is that it operates. I think Dilly Douglas talks about the power of whiteness is invisibility. Um, Ruth Frankenberg talks about like that unmarked or unremarked upon whiteness works in that way too. And so like, that's one thing about Phelps, right? Like we don't have to call him white because we know he's white, but we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to call him white, right? Because yeah. it's that unremarked upon. Um, and Phelps, the, the, the way Phelps was first kind of in the media talked about was like, it's this all American, hardworking blue collar, um, white guy, uh, like, you know, like they talked about how they talked about his consumption habits, like how much he ate, um, but also like the music, the rap music he listened to, which was a very like suburban kind of white guy thing. Um, the kind of car he drove, the clothes that he did or did not choose to buy, uh, very much like a 90, like a, a teenage boy thing, white boy thing. Um, and then they also talked about how much yardage he did, right? Yeah. And like just how hard he worked in the pool. To like the number, the, the stuff that's so staggering that even folks that don't know anything about swimming are impressed by how far he swims. Mm-hmm. Um, and that very much falls into like some of those other white masculinity sort of hard work. And then he also had like that hard edge of competition that he talks about often. Um, what they used to talk about, right? Like he doesn't love to win. He hated to lose, which to me is this fascinating sort of masculinization. And I'm not sure what to do with it. Uh, I tweeted about that when I was live tweeting my viewing of the white, the weight of gold that I didn't think anybody was paying attention. I just basically was writing notes on Twitter and I don't know if it's still there, but Michael Phelps's uh, agent responded to me and like put some nuances to that about, and like, it, it depends on how you read it and I, uh, how you read his responses. But like the way that I read it was like that kind of framing was arguably could be seen as part of the mental health challenges for lack of a better word that Phelps in hindsight, now you can see he was going through. Mm-hmm. And so what one of my projects I'm trying to think through now is does Michael Phelps represent a new kind of understanding of white masculinity um, or ma- white masculinities? Um, he benefited from redemption, right? Like he had mm-hmm. the two, he had the DUI in 2004, the DUI in 2000. 14, the bong picture in 2008, uh, where he wasn't doing anything that most college students did, 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 that most white college students do. 
um, I mean, I remember reading an article that was praising how much that literally wrote about how much weed could Michael Phelps's lungs hold uh, because he's a swimmer, right? And like you didn't, and at that same time, you're reading articles about Tyrone Matthew that the, or a few years later, Tyrone Matthew for LSU um, because he was smoking pot, he was going to go to jail, and it was similar to like literally the same magazine is writing about how he's going to go to jail because he smokes pot and he's like a he's like a um, an embarrassment to everyone in his family and the LSU football program. Yeah, I mean, um, sorry to interject. It reminds no me of like the Ryan Lochte, of course, the 2016 Olympic Games. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that was a whole bunch of BS. And he got slammed pretty hard right when it happened. But, you know, yeah. it's like totally like wiped away. Just sorry to interject. It just that's always. Yeah, that was that was really bad. Well, no. And I think that was interesting, too, because you at least for folks that. So for the one, so me and the three people on my committee who had read enough about Michael Phelps, you could probably see that Michael Phelps in 2016 was distancing himself from Lochte. Lochte, who was a year older, who is a year older than Phelps, was still like the playboy um, party guy. And Phelps had settled down. It was a family and like had gone through his rehab and was trying to be a better person, would actively talk about trying to be a better person in this kind of framework. And even before that, you could tell that he and Lochte were not, not, not necessarily didn't get along or anything, but they were not talked about in the same way together anymore. Um, and then when that thing happened where Lochte lied about what happened and then everything got worse for him, if he would have told the truth, I think he would have been fine, actually, because I think at the end of the day, the story came out that he was more of the victim than the, than the um, problem, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that was my reading of... Uh... Yeah. Um, but yeah, but very much, I mean, the sport is white. Ryan Lochte had cultivated that certain kind of white masculinity as a yeah. doof, as a... Um, so he kind of was a victim of his own branding, in a way. Yeah. Arguably. But that's a really good point. That'd be an interesting paper for somebody to write also. One of the things, in my experience, why so I, I, I'm not sure if you know this, Matt, I did my PhD at the University of South Carolina, and that was in Columbia, South Carolina, mm -hmm. where USC is, that's where the infamous bong hit picture was taken. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw the, the house that this was taken at. It was like a friend took me, a, a friend at the time, someone I knew, a, a local South Carolinian, um, took me to the house as like a tourist spot. As wow. like, you can't come to Columbia and not see this. And the approach that that, and this was a, a young, um, college-aged male, white male. And it was my conversation with him and with others talking about this bong hit house was the epitome of this like white masculine bro culture. It was just like, yeah, yeah, we had we had Phelps here, and he was he was he was token out all this like stuff. And like I saw exactly what you're talking about, even in my conversations with people who were remembering something that they never experienced. Like they weren't there. That person wasn't there, but they were remembering it as that like hyper-masculine figure. And I found that super interesting. And it has to be linked to just Phelps's whole persona, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think that's an indicator. And I, I think, I, I think I'm, cool, I'm citing the right person, but I think Holly Thorpe, and I know that, I know Kyle Goose has written about this a little bit, but I think Holly Thorpe, was maybe the first person in sports studies to write about like that 
white fratriarchal masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And like this yeah. brotherhood kind of thing. Um, yeah. uh, my friend and the guy that I co-wrote or co-authored that, that Kaepernick piece with Nick Dickerson writes about marijuana and sport and pop culture. Mm. And so he, he's more interested in like black masculinity. Um, but he has written a little bit about the comparison between like at that same time, like Joakim Noah, um, Josh Howard and yeah. the reverence and the just, he's a, just a good guy or, or how cool it is that Michael Phelps is, is smoking. Yeah. Whereas at the same time, you got these uh, black professional, black men, professional athletes, uh, Ricky Williams um, yeah. are like talked about as if they're ruining, like as if they are the biggest thing in the world, um, yeah. biggest problem in the world. So yeah, that's that's interesting. Columbia is a cool town. Why are they showing you that? <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a cool town, but it has more than the Michael Phelps longhouse. I like sure. visiting it. The one time I visited when I was twenty-two, <laughs> I could see why. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I want to switch uh, tracks a little bit and sort of talk about like athlete activism within swimming. Um, and so we're seeing athletes in other sports, especially after athlete A that have come forward and shared uh, concrete details about their experiences enduring racism, yeah. sexual harassment and abuse, et cetera. And like I mentioned, gymnastics world is an obvious one and really has gained a lot of steam worldwide over the last couple of months. And, and I'm, I'm kind of torn on the issue because on the one, and so I, I want your thoughts on it. And it's on the, on the one hand, I would like to see more swimmers speaking publicly about harmful coaching tactics. But yet on the other hand, there seems to be a growing number of swimmers and organizations that support black swimmers, LGBTQ plus swimmers, through swimmers for change, Afro swimmers, et cetera. And so how might, what, what do you think about this and sort of how might you characterize the state of activism within swimming? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I mean, I think I, I'm with you and I've been encouraged by some of the stuff I've seen, but I'm also, I kind of heard in your voice like this sort of ambivalence and sort of wish there was more sort of happening while also recognizing that these are real people that have to make these very complicated, difficult decisions about when they can talk about things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll talk more. I'll talk about the the racial the race aspect first because that's closer to my line of work and what I've been thinking about more. Like even though um, I think you and I have talked in conversations on Twitter about um, harassment, harassment, um, and USA Swimming. I know you guys had Scott Reed on. It was amazing. Yeah, also, yeah. about a month ago. Um, but like Anthony Irvin was the first national team athlete to kneel in support of Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did it at a swim meet in 2017. My Midwestern accent's going to hit me again in Brazil. Rhea Rapida. Oh, I'm sure that was wrong. Um, but he kneeled during the Olympics wearing USA colors during the national anthem. Not the Olympics. And, and that was a big moment. Um, and there was a lot more support in swimming world than I actually thought. Um, mm-hmm. So I was glad to see that, um, at, least, at least in the online stuff that I saw. I think, I think Anthony, because of who Anthony Irvin is, uh, I think people, and he's a thoughtful guy, and uh, I think people kind of, because of his brand, he got the benefit of the doubt, I guess you could argue, if you want to go with that celebrity thing. Um, so, and, and like, and he's done a lot of work, Colin Jones, um, a lot of the active, I guess a lot of stuff that we've argued could be activism, Colin Jones and Simone Manuel and Maritza Correa 
uh, and Leah Neal have been doing it within the USA Swimming family mm-hmm. with that USA Swimming Foundation. Um, so they've been pushing USA to create more resources. Um, the last numbers I saw, and there's, they're very tricky numbers because less than 50% of the, of the folks responded. But USA Swimming year-round swimmers from the age of 8 until the age of 18. Um, so USA Swimming, Derek, um, if you don't know, like that's the organizing body. But they're also, that's what the club teams are all part of USA Swimming. So when you call someone a USA swimmer, that's the folks that swim year-round for, like I used to swim for Rockwood Swim Club in St. Louis and Kermagee Swim Club in Oklahoma. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Um, But like they, and they have like the quote-unquote serious swimmers from the age of 6 till 18 uh, or 22, I guess, really. And I think it's 500,000 swimmers, 550, depends on the year, between 500 and 600,000 swimmers. And less than 1% have reported to be black. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, but obviously those numbers are a little bit skewed because so few people respond. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not that big of a skew. <laughs> um, but Colin Jones and Marisa uh, Korea, uh, um, Leah Neal and Simone Manuel have been really pushing to create opportunities for like this. So they're going to camps. They're making USA Swimming commit to like having resources in, in pools and areas where uh, more black children are to do swimming camps swimming clinics to create resources to maybe try to um, they're also trying to um, uh, have sliding scale of um, fees for membership Mm -hmm. and from what I've read that has a lot to do with like the work that those four swimmers have done to try to push this right along with like swimmers for change Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. like in part in parcel of those folks um, and then there's a diversity in, aqu- in aquatics group uh, that I follow on, t- on um, Twitter and social media. And they do a really good job of like looking at like recreational swimming, um, black, black swimmers, mostly black swimmers from what I can tell, um, but not only like creating space for those. There was an incident uh, during, the, during the pandemic where a black woman and her son, the cops got called on there where they were swimming at Fort Lauderdale swim pool. Yeah, I saw um, that. And the next week they had a swim in. Um, mm-hmm. where they taught about uh, a brief kind of like discussion about those things. And then they swam in the pool is the way I understood how it happened. And by all accounts, it went really well. Um, so like those groups, um, that stuff is encouraging to me yeah. um, as an academic, but also is like, I'm happy that I'm, ex- I'm happy that there'll be kids that were my age um, that will get to swim and make friends um, at, at the most basic level, right? Mm-hmm. There'll be more people swimming. Um, and it, it is a good way to exercise as long as you don't go too, too crazy and swim 10,000 yards a day and mm-hmm. lift too many weights and do too many other stuff. It's a healthy way to exercise. Um, and you can do it until you're 99 or until you're 110. Um, mm-hmm. and it's also a good thing to learn if you, um, in terms of life skills, like, so you don't drown, like literally life skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you- and, and so, but, so you would, pro- so sorry to interject. So you would say no. that it's, it's more that they're, they're working within USA Swimming, right? They're working more within this, um, within the umbrella organization to kind of promote change from within rather than what we're seeing in say gymnastics and other sports where they're just sort of, they're like resorting to social media to kind of say, this is wrong. This is what's happening. Something needs to be done. That seems to be the case from what I've seen yeah. um, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and but like, but like to get to like the, as Scott Reed pointed it out, and then as like athlete A, and what you guys have done a great job of getting folks to talk about, you guys have talked about like sexual harassment in sports. Swimming is not immune. 
yeah. to like mm-hmm. sexual harassment, sexual assaults, uh, and the sport. Um, and that doesn't, to me at least, it doesn't seem like there's, I guess, uh, there's people trying to create space. So like what I, like these are my kind of thoughts on it. Mm. Um, so I, I would hope someone would correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but there doesn't seem to be as much space f- within the sport to reform that, right? Mm. Like it seems like swimming is doing a good job of trying to create space, and they're not perfect at this in any means. Um, trying to create space for black swimmers to take the lead to try to encourage other black swimmers to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem to be happening for women because it's mostly women swimmers who have come forward who have been harassed or assaulted. It doesn't seem like there's a similar kind of work and space being done for them. Yeah. Um, and for me, and I think you and I have talked about this on Twitter, for me, the, the, sport, the very sport of swimming, they have to honestly take a reckoning because of the power dynamics. Like, literally... <laughs> Your coach is always looking down on you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> your yeah. your body is always being surveilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, so young girls, young boys and girls, mostly young girls and um, adolescents, are being surveilled, disciplined by the gays, um, by the coach's gays, who are disproportionately men, um, white men, um, and so like it, it's it's. Ripe, um, as I think I, I think Nazi Nazi Mahars talked about this. It's ripe for attracting predators mm-hmm. because of the literal structures of the sport um, and like the uniforms of the sport. Right, like you can't get outside of that. Right, the same reason why violent racial segregation or de- yeah segregation started happening. Um, if you if according to Wiltsey is about like a sexualization of the swimming space arguably because of sexism and um, mm-hmm. gender ideology, that, is, that has to be addressed and talked about honestly in the same... Uh, and I don't think swimming's doing it. And I'm not as optimistic about that as I am about the movement to encourage and invite white, or non-white or black swimmers primarily into the sport. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, does that, does that kind of, is that your along the lines of your analysis or Joanna or is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, um, and you know, what, you know, I'm always like critical of, um, the extent to which even like athlete activists could be doing more. Right. So part of it is that it would be great to, it w- I guess it would be great to sort of, to sort of see people detailing. And again, I understand like how hard, or I have a sense of how hard it can be to um to to come forward and to talk out and i and i think swimming there are dynamics that are preventing people from doing that also that are maybe yeah. different than like way different than what's going on in gymnastics um but i think i think people still don't understand the gravity of it because people haven't quite come forward with like the explicit like this is what happened to me this is what happened repeatedly in different circumstances hopefully we'll get there at some point where people feel comfortable and supported enough to come out and do that i just yeah we're just not quite there yet for reasons that you've laid out i think really well yeah and i mean i, I do think that i should say like when when you shared your experiences um 
I think that is a good step towards creating space. And I mean, I, I'm glad I'm, I, I know that wouldn't have been easy, but I was, I'm glad that you felt like you could do that. Um, because th- like you said, like, I think at least where we're at now and like looking at how we've seen reckonings, that seems to be one of the ways, one of the best ways for it to happen is for to create space for folks to feel comfortable. And then when they do come forward to support them, um, for telling themselves and then hold the people accountable rather than what USA swimming is doing. As Scott Reed talked about like USA swimming, I don't want to be flip here, but they seem to be taking a book out of taking a page out of the book of the Catholic church and just letting the coaches go from a to B to C to D and never tell anyone why they left a to go to B. Um, and for the longest time, swimming was a space where it was not uncommon for coaches to date their swimmers. Uh, and there's been some folks that have made some very, as a 13 year old, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I still remember a few of my teammates and a few of the places I lived that ended up in a very serious relationship with the coach once they hit 18 or 19 or whatever. Um, as a 13 year old, I didn't really have the emotional maturity to understand what was going on really. Um, but in hindsight like that, I don't want to, I, I, I don't like thinking about these people as bad people. Um, because they're complicated and complex and they were great coaches to me, but that's inappropriate and wrong and you shouldn't do it. Um, and how do we fix that culture is hard work and folks have to be willing to do that hard work. And well, put, and we will certainly link both the Scott Reed episode and the episode with our very end, very own, uh, Johanna Mellis in the show notes, because those are really two episodes that really like provide a lot of insight to this discussion right here right yeah definitely definitely i want to pivot a little bit it's still on uh, it's still a question about activism but activism in a, a sort of different way and and what we're seeing play out all around us um right now in terms of the 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 college football thing and i know i might be like constantly going back to this and and my apologies for That's that right. but we on this podcast, if if you're just tuning in, we've been like covering the sort of push and pull between various interest groups toward and away from canceling the college football season. And you're doing a good job of it too, if I can say so. <laughs> we we do appreciate that, Matt. Thank you. We have like uh, probably on perhaps countless occasions now calls for the cancellation of the season and actually the cancellation of college football more generally. Yeah. I'd like to get your insights into how this moment and the brilliant labor mobilization we're seeing take place in college football might impact a non-revenue generating sport like swimming. And perhaps more importantly, how swimming would be related to college football and whether or not college football is canceled. Like last week, we mentioned it right off the hop. We saw your alma mater, Iowa, announce that it would be ending its swimming programs after the 20, 2021 season. And this is like, despite having, as you noted, some pretty impressive swimming infrastructure built. And I would probably say that has something to do with the college football team at Iowa. The fact that there's like this infrastructure and there's all these. How do you think that relationship plays out? And what's your take on the role of non-revenue generating sport in um, supporting 
college athletic laborers, like in terms of uh, football athletes, and then vice versa, the role of college revenue generating athletic laborers to support people in Olympic sports like swimming and rowing and et cetera. Yeah. Whew. Um, and that is the, that is the question that is probably the most salient right now. Um, first of all, like, um, yeah, just to give a plug to Iowa swimming before they, before they destroy it, they've had, I think 12, 13, no, 15, I think Olympians, um, a few gold medalists, I think in about five yeah. different countries. Uh, the, the butterfly stroke was invented there. Um, and as I joked with um, Johanna on my Facebook page and other few other people, some people would want to cut the sport, cut the sport of swimming just because Iowa swimming just because they invented butterfly. They hate that stroke so much. Okay, um, I'm not a fan of that approach. I love butterfly, and I could swim it all day. So, but I understand most people really hate it. So continue. Well, and it and it was my stroke too. But yeah, um, <laughs> and and they just built this beautiful, this amazing pool that's actually going to be housing or was is still plan to host, I think it was the Women's NCAA's championship in 2021. Um, some of the swimming world wants to punish them by getting rid of it. Uh, mm-hmm. they, want to take, they want NCAA to take hosting this, the championship away from them for this decision. Because they can't, oh, wow. Um, so, like, basically just... Uh, so, uh, and it's, it's very frustrating as someone who just likes the sport, um, yeah. finally again. Um, and love, I mean, I love that pool they built and they spent a lot of money in that pool. And it's really like, they do a good job of outreach to the community to let other folks in the community swim in it and all that stuff, which is not always the case, uh, in university, um, uh, recreational facilities. Anyways, um, you still got to pay for it though, which is a problem. But anyways, Mm -hmm. um, I would push back a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. on one sense of like this whole idea of non-revenue sport, right? Like, People do pay. People were dumb enough to pay to watch me swim when I was in college. <laughs> um, luckily, yeah. they got to see other people swim um, yeah. who were much better than me. And so, like, this idea of revenue generating versus non-revenue generating, I think is one thing is, like, maybe we can, like, is that binary helpful to building solidarity? Or is well, it I helpful? also don't think, it's, I don't think it's a complete binary. Like, I, I yeah. do think, like, we tend to approach it as such. But you can't tell me that some baseball programs aren't producing revenue for, and just like some hockey programs in the Northeast aren't producing any revenue for. Yeah. Or, uh, like it, it's not a perfect buy. It's not like, yeah. oh, basketball and football are the only revenue generating. But it, I, like, I th- also think it's a useful concept to understand that what's at stake in Division One FBS college football and basketball yeah. uh, is way different than a sport like swimming like kind of across the board yes i think that's fair Mm -hmm. but i think like the fact that we that we need to be better at like talking about what we mean when we say revenue and what those ideology what that idea the ideology that upholds even i think might get us to like thinking about the complexities of this right yeah um i mean like if you've ever watched the big 10 and i've ever watched penn state women or penn state volleyball like people are paying to watch those amazing teams play and it looks like an amazing event uh, anyways, um, like the grand scheme of it, like I, I, to answer your, I don't, I'm, just, I'm not I, actually sure the question is answerable. Like, yeah, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to present it uh, as a question that like 
to kind of put you in the corner and say you have to answer no you like, didn't <laughs> difficult question but but what i like what i'm what i'm just trying to grapple with is understanding kind of where i should land from people who are involved with these other sports where i should land when people come and say oh if you think college sports should be canceled then you also must yeah. say goodbye to every other sport and how do i negotiate that because i don't i know people want to play sports i know people want to watch sports yeah i'm a fan of sports and i want to see sports there but i'm not a fan of exploitation yes and i think that's a good that's a good way of putting it like how do we grapple with this i mean i think it gets back to kind of the conversation the questions that we kind of landed on in one of the other um uh things that we were talking about like like honestly what is the purpose of college sport right and i know there are brilliant people that have been wrestling with that forever um but i think that we have to decide for ourselves maybe first and then build coalitions um once we have made those decisions uh, and debates and discussions about like it is is should there be varsity sports at the college level Mm -hmm. and if so what do they do why why are they there right and in this current, and I think I, I don't want to put, um, I don't want to misread what y'all wrote, but like part of the argument also is like, on top of the other things, just the sport of football itself seems, especially a commercialized football system mm-hmm. and other commercialized sports, seem to fundamentally, at best, um, transgress or um, resist um, or push. Uh, against the mission of public education. Yeah. Like that's yeah. best case reading of it. Yeah. Um, at worst, they're fundamentally just um, antithetical to the missions of the university. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that you all have made very compelling arguments that the sport of football itself, because of what it does to the brain yeah. is antithetical to in the and mission. Of it, in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. And so like, that's the thing. Like, so, all right, well, I could argue, based on my own personal experience of having a shattered hand and a, two bad shoulder injuries, mm-hmm. swimming is bad for your health, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't, I, and there's be people that can make very good arguments that, that I'm wrong, right? Like, so like, wh- how do we draw those lines? Who draws that line? Is the best case to not have swimming at all, and not have sports at all on college campus other than student run club sports, Yeah, yeah. right? And, and some days I feel like that is the best thing to do, right? Like get the adults away from it or get the, get the college adult, like the, the paid professional adults away from it. Let the college adults who are also students run it um, mm-hmm. themselves for their own purposes. Uh, if we want to have elite football or elite baseball or whatever, make the NFL, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, whatever, have their own farm teams and them fund it and them do all the, the health care and everything right that. Um, and so remove that kind of sporting model from college. Is that- I've, I've, long, I've long tweeted and I've long been saying that the solution, my ideal solution, or, or how I see this playing out, is just untethering education, higher education from athletics. Yeah. That's the solution. If somebody wants to play sports, they can play sports all they like. If somebody wants to go join a team and people want to go pay them, uh, like there are intramurals. Um, there are actually extramurals at South Carolina. There's an extramural hockey because they don't have a hockey team. 
but there's an optional extramural hockey team that is under the name University of South Carolina that you can go pay and watch on Fridays if you want. Yeah. I don't know who gets money from that, but that has nothing to do with education. Their scholarship is not tied to that. Um, so I think that is what part of the solution. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, and I think, and that's a good way of putting it, that untethering. I like that idea, but I think, and then to answer part of your other, or not answer, but kind of think about some of the other things you said, like what we saw. So Iowa cut. So the men's and women's team, swim team is, is joined. And that was a move that a lot of swim teams did over the last 15 years to quote unquote cut costs was they, they merged the, um, uh, the men's and women's swim teams because it's going to help with travel costs, coaching costs, res- other resources costs, right? Um, so they already did that. Um, but so they cut the men's and women's swim team. I think it was the men's gymnastics team and the men's um, tennis team. Um, because they're in, they're, in, they're in financial dire straits. And they said the university is going to lose between 60 to $100 million. Uh, there's $600 million in the red. Those teams combined cost $980,000. Yeah. So it was the proverbial drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. And so I think what a dire prediction would be that as this accelerated commercialization of college sports continues, right, it's been going on since, what, 1875, um, this acceleration of commercialization is continuing. Um, I'm sure that... um, Victoria Jackson talked better about this than I'm about ready to. <laughs> uh, but like um, this situation continues, there's going to be a streamlining of athletic programs, right? Mm-hmm. Like where they're going to be just basically men's and women's basketball and, and, and NCAA uh, football, right? At the, at the Power Five conference, right? It's yeah. obviously not going to be that extreme, but it's going to be going towards that, right? And all those rules, like so. My old conference, the MAC conference, which was the first conference to um, cancel the fall season, right? The first big conference to cancel the fall yeah. season. Um, actually, the second, because I guess the Ivy League is still a big conference. Um, at least that, from, this is what, from what I saw, Division One. <laughs> they used to have rules where team, like schools, in order to be in the MAC, had to have ten teams. Yeah, and they had to have a. They had to have. It had to be equal representation of men's and women's teams, and they all had to have like a core four, whatever that. I think it was yeah. basketballs, both basketballs, football, uh, soccer. I mean, I'm sorry, softball and baseball, um, yeah. and then track and field. But as these kinds of quote unquote financial obligations, um, and that kind of bookkeeping that we teach people that that is how it seems like all college sports run now right, through the same kind of model, um, they change those rules. And so these things just that were supposed to guarantee a certain kind of equity and a certain kind of variety and that you could argue are part of the educational mission, right, um, were slowly just the rules that are supposed to keep those guardrails were slowly um, erased and ignored. And this, this, that conference and other conferences are just basically trying to fall, chase the dollars that you can, this, the dollars that you can get from football and, and basketball mm-hmm. um, through, through denying opportunities to other athletes. Um, one, one of the things that really bothers me about this whole conversation and the conversations I have with 
people in almost every setting nowadays it seems like since we've been going hard on this <laughs> is the fact that every time there's a conversation about higher education it comes back to money mm. and yeah it's so it's such a sad a state point. of affairs and it's it's over a century of defunding education we've come to the point where we have to worry about funding higher education through sport and we forget yeah. that the actual goal of higher education should be higher education in and of itself. And instead of thinking about ways in which we can leverage certain bodies, predominantly black bodies, into money to fund both other sports and our institutions, how about we put more public funding into our universities and simultaneously make them more accessible for those um, people who are facing all the cultural, socioeconomic, linguistic, all of the, the, the barriers that we put in place as a system for them to even get there, to have the opportunity, how about we change that so they can get the opportunity? That's really what I want the conversation to be about, but we, we, we tend not to do it. We just like don't want to have the conversation. We want to quabble over who's going to support who, who's going to yeah. get, how are we going to fund this program? How are we going to do this? Why don't, why don't we change admission standards, revolutionize higher education to, um, uh, to, to completely fund it through public dollars and make it so people can get in and people aren't judged by an SAT or a GRE or a whatever other test that we can possibly think of um, in order to get in. Those are the things that we can actually do. You're Canadian, right? <laughs> I'm Canadian. <laughs> well, yeah. I was going to say so that we're not scrambling, you know, the day, the week before class to throw all of our stuff online in case, yes. you know, in case of these outbreaks, right? Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to yeah. add that too. Yeah. 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 No, those are, yeah, I agree with both of you. <laughs> Nailed well, it, Derek. What are, yeah. Thank you. I had to, I had to rant. I had to give a little bit of a Canadian socialist rant, I guess. I've been made fun of several times lately on Twitter for being Canadian. I know, Canadian. It's, it's hilarious. So therefore, I cannot talk about <laughs> Well, yeah, Archer now, football feels like ovals that are like 100 meters long and five yards or five And you're allowed to run before, like, yeah. it's very weird that the, <laughs> I call the Canadian Football League the crappy football league for a variety of reasons. Um, also, they should be canceled as well. <laughs> um, but anyways, Matt, Matt, it was so great to have you on the show talking about um, your your vast and diverse um, work and, and research. Um, you are a friend of the show um, and we will surely link all of your so your social stuff on Twitter. And I urge everyone to give um, Matt a follow, check out his work. But once again, thank you, Matt, for coming on the podcast. Thank you all. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you all. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.